After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, I'm back, Raghu Marcus, and back with Roshi Joan Halifax, one of my my dearest friends, but uh, one of my most important teachers, I count her, for many years. And Roshi, welcome. Thank you so much, Raghu. It's always a joy to be with you. Same, same, same. So everybody out there, uh, Ro- Roshi Halifax has a new book. It's coming out in May. Is that correct? Am I That's correct? right. And there it is, Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where fur- Fear, <laughs> Furry Fear, and Courage <laughs> Meet. Uh, uh, and I just said to uh, Roshi before we went on, I said, you know, this will take about five podcasts if we were to properly investigate everything ah. and talk about everything. I mean, it is so rich, Roshi. It's just incredible. Um, and if you don't mind, there's a few things I'd like to, to, to read from the book. Okay. And just have you elaborate on a, a little bit more. And then yeah. uh, there's... Yeah. Um, so you I'm say, open to doing five podcasts with you. Oh, you are? <laughs> yeah, if I could only catch you if you had that kind of time, yeah. <laughs> but oh and we're we're going to be together i must mention this yeah. in maui with ramdas krishnas frank ostaseski and uh and bob thurman who i don't I even know yeah and I, uh so that's going to be a delightful time at the beginning of may i think there everybody there there may not be places in the actual uh hotel where the thing takes place at the nepili but there is Wonderful places right next door, and you can come from off-site. Okay, there are still availability. Do you mean the the program's almost full? Correct. Wow. I'm excited. Well, I have to say that I am there on the release date of the book, which makes oh, me really? so happy. Okay. And you will, of course, sign copies. I will be a bunch sign of copies. copies, and it is a totally cool book. I tell you, it is so powerful. If uh, people want to, they can pre-order it now on Amazon uh, at a discount, but um, they should also read um, the editorial reviews. We have, it's over the top. Yeah, it really is. And uh, and uh, just to reiterate, everybody, it will really help 
the book if you do a pre-order. Now, all of all of everyone listening to Mind Rolling, and, and this uh, we're going to have an excerpt out on Ramdas Dada. We're going to do a bunch of things, uh, and it'll really help. Uh, that's how it works with Amazon. If you get enough people interested, they bring in enough copies to make sure that uh, anybody who wants one will get a copy because they're not good at last-minute stuff, Amazon. Okay? No, they aren't. <laughs> and they own the territory. So here's just something from the book. I have come to see that mental states are also ecosystems. These sometimes friendly and at times hazardous terrains are natural environments embedded in the greater system of our character. I believe it is important to study out our inner ecology so that we can recognize when we are on the edge, in danger of slipping from health into pathology. And we, when we do fall into the less habitable regions of our minds, we, the less habitable, re- there's a lot of that, whoa, we can learn from these dangerous territories. Edges are places where opposites meet, where fear meets courage and suffering meets freedom where solid ground ends in a cliff face, where we can gain a view that takes in so much more of our world and where we need to maintain great awareness lest we trip and fall. seems to me that I did pick something that's the core of what this book is. And maybe uh, just a, how did this come to you? Just give us a little bit about the process and, and what we are talking about here uh, in terms of these edge states. You know, um, Raghu, I uh, have learned so much from my failures. That's how it came to me. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was, I I learned that it's important not to devalue the very uh, obstacles that we encounter in our human experience. And, you know, we're such a lovey-dovey, everything is wonderful world. You know, that's how some people sort of see it. And um, uh, it, there's a kind of rejection of the shadow side. And I'm, I'm talking not just about shadow in terms of the issues that we aren't uh, able to access or see, but I'm talking about the negative aspects. And my failures have been my greatest teachers. Hmm. And uh, can you talk a little bit about the different edge states that uh, are in this book? Yeah. As- so um, the, I explore five edge states, but I'm sure that we could take this perspective and actually build out even you know, more territories. But these are edge states that I found to be uh, really important for people who are involved in selfless service. And um, yeah, so uh, the first one is altruism. And altruism is that, experience uh, of helping others, serving others, um, where uh, there's some kind of sacrifice and uh, in the process of it. And um, that sacrifice, if you will, if it becomes too great, uh, can harm the individual who's serving, can harm uh, the people whom we're serving or the creatures whom we're serving can harm the institutions that we're serving in and can harm the institutions or even the countries that uh, we're serving in. 
So there's altruism, and then the challenge side is pathological altruism. So that's a, that's a pretty big category. And I think just to be more concise, I'm gonna to go to the introduction mm. where I introduce the edge states. So um, I talk about empathy in the book. I have a big section on, on each of these areas, empathy and empathic distress. And I, I say in the book, when we are able to sense into the suffering of another person, our empathy brings us closer to one another, can inspire us to serve and expands our understanding of the world. But if we take on too much of the suffering of another and identify too intensely with it, we may become damaged or unable to act. Mm. And then I um, have a big section, uh, Raghu, on integrity. And I say about this section, integrity points to having strong moral principles. But when we engage in or witness acts that violate our sense of integrity, justice, or beneficence, moral suffering can be the outcome. Mm. And then uh, there's a big section on respect. And respect is a way we hold beings and things in high regard. Respect can disappear into the swamp of toxic disrespect when we go against the grain of values and principles of civility and disparage others or ourselves. And then I have a section on engagement. Engagement in our work can give us a sense of purpose and meaning to our lives, particularly if our work serves others, but overwork, a poisonous workplace and the experience of the lack of efficacy can lead to burnout, which can cause physical and psychological collapse. Mm. Then I say, like any doctor who diagnoses an illness before recommending a treatment, I felt compelled to explore the destructive side of these five virtuous human qualities. That mm. is altruism, empathy, integrity, respect, and engagement. Along the way, I was surprised to learn that even in these degraded forms, edge states can teach and strengthen us just as bone and muscle are strengthened when exposed to stress or if broken or torn can heal in the right circumstances and become stronger for having been injured. Yeah. Okay. And so, but I have found reading the book because you mentioned right at the beginning, especially uh, you related to these edge states, especially people that are doing um, service, right? basically. Uh, but I counter that with how meaningful many of these states that I could personally relate with. And let me, uh, w without uh, being officially, quote unquote, doing service. And one of them was around uh, pathological altruism. Okay. Ah. And uh, altruism, you say, that is sourced in fear, the unconscious need for social approval, and where this, where this next line uh, is, is where I got, oh, God, yes, that's me, the compulsion to fix other uh -huh. people, okay? The unhealthy power dynamics easily crosses the line into harm. And, uh, yeah, so... Here I am. I have a, a healthy, unhealthy dose of wanting to fix other people. I think that's a very common um, attribute for many, many, many people. 
that that uh, especially in relationships, right? So talk a little bit. Give us a little some antidotes to that um, very pathological trait. Well, I feel always, Raghu, that the first and most important thing is being aware of those tendencies, which are, we could say, more harmful or less helpful. Um, and so, you know, for altruism, um, uh, I, I, in the book, I explore what uh, we call the three tenets. Um, and the three tenets are not knowing, bearing witness, and compassionate action. That before we engage in compassionate action, we sit with a kind of openness to the whole field of uh, whatever we're doing, whether it's the sense of subjectivity and self-importance that we might be experiencing, the institution uh, or the ethos that we're serving in, um, the uh, situation of the person or people whom we're endeavoring to serve. It's like really being open without this, the kind of biases that drive us into uh, uh, altruism that could end up harming us or others. So not knowing is a really powerful, uh, it's sort of a beginner's mind kind of thing. And um, then bearing witness, it's like being um, in that experience of empathy. Uh, bearing witness is a kind of empathy. It's our capacity to really open and to sense into the experience of others. And out of the insight arising from not knowing and bearing witness, it's possible for us to engage in action that is basically compassionate. Mm. And in fact, you say in the best of worlds, altruism and our perception of it is grounded in the ability to rise above self-interest, to be context sensitive and to be comfortable with ambiguity and radical That's research, right. as you just said. Rising above self-interest, that would be a uh, very top of, of the list uh, in my own case of seeing uh -huh. and being aware. Talk about rising about, uh, above self-interest. This is not an easy thing to do when we wake up every morning. Uh, as Krishnas likes to say, with the movie of me. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I, so much of our identity is wrapped around us being perceived as good people. Mm. I mean, you're a good person. Uh, Ram Das and Krishna Das are good people. Um, but, um, and it's not very pleasant to per be perceived as a not good person. But when that motivates our actions. That's a kind of problem. Right. How, talk about a, about a, a real practice that counters this consistent self-referential mind. Yeah, you know, Raghu, um, the last section of the book is a big section on compassion. And yeah. my contention uh, in the whole book is that the, the experience that shifts us out of self-referentiality, out of the pathological aspects of these five edge states, is in fact compassion. And I speak about compassion as in, in, uh, comprised of a suite of uh, qualities or processes 
that are um, trainable, which include attentional balance, um, pro-social states of mind, which you know my good friend, our good friend Sharon Salzberg always writes about um, so wonderfully uh, and teaches you know, in her Brahma Vihara practices that we can actually cultivate um, loving kindness. We can cultivate the feeling of the concern for others. We can cultivate sympathetic joy and cultivate uh, equanimity. So pro-social states of mind are really essential uh, for us to, uh, to nurture. And then um, uh, intention, uh, which is also related to pro-social states of mind, but it's really looking at, you know, how do we develop moral character? How do we enhance our capacity for moral sensitivity and moral nerve that we stand um, strong within our principles? And then uh, insight. There are many practices about steadying the mind down and allowing us to really investigate um, our, not only our subjectivity, but our interconnectedness with all beings and things. And the last is embodiment. So there's a, there's a huge range of practices uh, that help to cultivate a quality of altruism that's healthy. Uh, that's what I mean. We, Sharon and I, Ramdas, we, this is, you know, this is what we teach. Yeah. Can you just uh, uh, define pro-social a little bit for everybody? Well, I think it's uh, easy to understand if you know what antisocial means. Ah. Right? <laughs> okay. So, you know, it's, there are uh, many pro-social uh, emotions. They, things are like kindness, compassion, gratefulness, uh, and so forth. Mm. So the intentional cultivation, you know, really um, uh, nourishing the neural networks uh, associated with these positive psychological states, which are pro-social, they're about others. How do we benefit the world? Mm. And back to this, uh, by the way, when whenever any, some people talk to me and, and they are obviously very, very attached to their thoughts and believing in their thoughts and so on. I have a little mantra, which is forget yourself. Okay. Ignore yourself, basically. Just ignore yourself. And then I see in this book and uh, this wonderful thing that you picked up a quote from Viktor Frankl, who was that uh, Auschwitz survivor and uh, who is an amazing beyond amazing human being. Anybody out there, check out Viktor Frankl off on Google. But uh, being human always points and is directed to something or someone other than oneself. The more one forgets himself by giving himself to a, to a cause, to serve, or another person to love, the more human he is. Isn't that, that beautiful? Is so great. He just... He just he just, you know, out of the horrendous stress of being in a concentration camp, um, but seeing, you know, that if people aren't shrunk into the fear of sur fears around if they're going to survive or not, what happens is just one opens up um, to a world of meaning. Mm. And Viktor Frankl's work has always inspired me. Yeah. No, it's completely, yeah, as I suggest, everybody take, 
if you don't know him, please do look him up. He's in just something else. Uh, and, and just further into this uh, notion um, of self, uh, I love uh, the, uh, I think the Tibetans have a, have a self-cherishing. Yes. I love that uh, little phrase that they have that really says it all. You also say here, I believe what's important is our ability to recognize when we are, we are at risk of slipping over the edge into selfishness and to learn from the utter fragility and mystery of life. Um, and this is also about uh, getting too comfortable with not knowing. But ever since I've known you, and, and I quote you in podcasts all the time around getting comfortable with the not knowing, getting comfortable with the mystery. And uh, that has been a, um, a huge help for me personally to really uh, delve into that in a way that uh, uh, really uh, approaches the subject of death and that that is a highly important ingredient in every part of our lives yeah, why don't you just talk about that a little bit? Because it really, um, it really affects the selfish inclinations that we have. Well, um, you know, as you know, uh, my my work uh, since the nineteen seventies has been in the end of life care field. It's part of the of what I do, um, which is training clinicians in. Um, compassionate care of dying people. And uh, Raghu uh, Ramdas and Mirabai Bush have just written a fantastic book um, on death and dying. And, you know, I have to say, um, I, I'm just, what could I say? Let's see. Filled with admiration and appreciation for um, the work that the two of them have done on this uh, new book, um, which is coming out soon, and it is called Walking Each Other Home. Hmm. Walking Each Other Home. And um, it captures, uh, I feel, the, the spirit that I endeavored to catch, capture in my book, Being With Dying, which death is a mystery. It's the ultimate moment of liberation. Um, we can't know how we'll die but we can also um, engage in practices and Mirabai and Ramdas offer practices in their book and I in my book on how to um, set the heart and mind in a way that um, allows us to meet death as uh, a mystery and also as a friend. So that I feel is our work to, you know, be right, straight, uh, clear about our mortality, to appreciate this life as it is, and at the same time to understand that the final developmental phase of our lives is our encounter with death. Mm. Yeah. One of the other aspects that uh, there was an interesting thing, of course, you talk about empathy. And I think right off the bat, uh, one of the biggest misnomers people have uh, is around uh, the connectivity uh, or, you know, this empathy and compassion. 
And I think it's probably good if you Im- immediately give us the, there is a difference between empathy and compassion. Yeah, I think many people have conflated, confused empathy and compassion. And empathy is that experience of uh, physical resonance, emotional resonance, or cognitive resonance with another, where we include in our subjectivity um, the physical experience, emotional or cognitive experience of another. But it doesn't necessarily, um, at least from my point of view, um, uh, well, what can I say? It doesn't necessarily include concern or an Mm. aspiration to actually uh, transform uh, Mm. another suffering. Whereas very specifically, um, uh, compassion uh, is based on our capacity to attend to the experience of another, to um, actually perceive whatever the, the experience of another is, their suffering, to feel concern for another and to aspire to transform that suffering into non-suffering. Mm. And, you know, uh, compassion can entail empathy, but it is not empathy per se. And interestingly enough, uh, you talk in the book about somatic empathy describes the experience of strong physical resonance with another. And you gave the example of Dr. Joel Salinas. Isn't that a fascinating, yeah, it's like... I did a podcast with him. I was like blown away by it. Yeah, by... really? I would love to meet him. What's he like? He's a, just, he's a, he's fairly young. I mean, yeah. and he works in the medical profession, obviously. And he has what is called mirror touch synesth- synesthesia. Synesthesia. Yeah. Uh, which allows him to sense the somatic experience of others. I mean, he told me he went into a, the first time he totally realized this, he went into the operating room and somebody was in such enormous distress. I can't, a heart attack or what it was. And he began to experience that to a T. And next thing he knew, he was on the floor having that attack. I mean, he, this launched him into, and many of these people, uh, have a very difficult way in life. I mean, they have a lot of problems because they cannot, he has managed to, uh, to absorb it in a way that he, his awareness is extraordinarily high and people's awareness aren't high and I think they have a lot of trouble. But amazing. Talk about empathy. Uh, yeah, well, I, you know, when I read articles about him, I haven't met him, but I'm really looking forward to meeting him one day. So I, you know, he was, uh, his story is included in the book on somatic empathy um, because he's one of the most vivid examples I've encountered of someone who can physically attune to another, but also has uh, learned how to manage that attunement process so that he's not overwhelmed. Yeah, exactly. And most of them, many of them do get overwhelmed. And become shut-ins of sorts. Yeah. Exactly. And that's why I say he's somewhat of an advanced being because he's able to really balance this in his life and and has awareness and knows how to deal with it. And he's he's pretty amazing. How did you get how do you get turned on to him? uh, 
he wrote a book, and uh, do you have his book? I mean, he, no, he I wrote, don't. Oh, he wrote a great book, uh, and uh, he uh, how did I? I got a hold of it, I guess, and then somebody t- said, "Oh yeah, you've got to do a podcast with him." So we did. He's he's really delightful, and uh, yeah, that's one of the good parts of the old podcast job, Roshi, meeting incredible people. Um, so what, one of the things uh, around empathy that uh, that I loved what you talked about, uh, and you talked about it uh, documented in neuroscience, that meditators have more mental plasticity and less stickiness. I love that. Less stickiness um, uh, than non-meditators. What, what if, so th- everybody out there, uh, we constantly are talking about you... Uh, you know, people write in or they talk about how they would like to get their life more in balance. They'd like to get more uh, to the truth of who they really are. And we are always suggesting meditation as certainly as a a process on the path that is, in my mind, absolutely necessary. And of course, uh, you being a Zen abbot, you will concur with that. (laughs) I concur. (laughs) You concur. So just talk about, though, the uh, how they're finding out about this. I know you've been involved uh, with this in terms of uh, hanging out with neuroscientists and, and His Holiness. Uh, talk a little bit about the reality of this uh, neuroplasticity plasticity and meditation. So I think one of the really powerful things, uh, Raghu, is that w- when we meditate and we begin to explore our experience, Um, we begin to come into a a relationship with the groundlessness of everything, the truth of impermanence, um, moment to moment change. And as a result of that kind of experience, you begin to see, wow, every time I lock down on a, a person, a thought, a thing, a possession, a place, like for example, on December 14th, my home in the mountains burned down. So, you know, I got to sit there or stand there uh, and look at this building that was hand-built, completely beautiful, this beautiful bathhouse um, burned to the ground. And the thing that came up for me in that process was very interesting. One was, I, you know, and I was wrapped by... Uh, in the experience of witnessing it, I won't say positively or negatively, but still, you know, it was like the, it, it got my attention. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of sadness came up and then, you know, uh, um, I also then had this sense behind it of connecting with all the people in California who had lost their homes. Some people had died. Uh, the forests that were ravaging California, the fires that were ravaging California at that time in uh, early December. And so, you know, I, I kind of connected, you know, I didn't, wasn't thinking, oh, my cabin, I could, this is the worst thing in the world. I can never re- replace it. Um, it was more like I connected with people who have lost their homes in the fire, you know, at very close to the same time I lost mine. And then I, um, you know, uh, had this feeling of, oh, I'm this gratitude arose. And the gratitude was, I'm so grateful no one was harmed in this fire that uh, burned my house down. I'm so grateful that the forest didn't burn down. 
And, um, you know, I just kind of let go uh, in through the medium of gratefulness. And so what happens is that I think that sense of um, insight, but it wasn't like, wow, you know, it was just waves of insight rolling through my experience, which was very vivid as this fire was raging. Um, uh, I, th I think it helped me it just kind of natural. I mean, I've been meditating since 1965. So, you know, for better or for worse, uh, at times it's gray, at times it's brilliant. But um, in any case, I feel like that my neural networks have uh, mm. opened, uh, been nourished in a way to help me not get caught in the narrative of loss, but to be in the narrative of, uh, ah, the truth of impermanence, ah, letting go, ah, gratefulness, Ah, ah, mm. ah. Mm. So it's like that. And um, yeah, yeah. So, so what science is doing now, contemplative neuroscience is it's um, validating what practitioners have experienced for, you know, thousands of years, the truth of um, mental plasticity. We don't know about neuroplasticity in terms of our subjective experience, but we can all, we know that we're able to state shift. We're able to see things with more depth of field um, that practice can allow us to open our sense of uh, well-being, even in the midst of loss. Mm. And now, you know, you get in that fMRI machine, and wow, uh, what we're seeing is is this kind of mapping of uh, neural networks associated with uh, the parts of the brain that um, are about insight and prosociality. Mm. I love what you just said, state shifts. So everybody uh, that's listening, much emphasis here on the practicality of meditation and the f state shift, that's just one great outcome uh, that happens over, I mean, I, that is something that I myself can attest to, that that happens uh, over time. So is, wouldn't it be great that you, you just didn't stay in some negative state and indulge in it like many of us have done in our lives and that suddenly you became way more nimble. You had that nimbleness, which Roshi just described in her own experience. Yes. It would be yes. a great thing. Not to mention cutting down your act reactivity to these things, to negative states, which also lead to further suffering. Uh, there, There is... Uh, also, you, of course, as you mentioned, one of the edge states being integrity. And so something struck me. Yes, I read your book and, uh, and I just relate with what is, where I am still caught. Uh, I find that very helpful right, to point that out. And here's one of those things uh, which uh, you quote uh, the social critic, Re Rebecca Solnit, who I've never <laughs> heard of, actually. 
and uh, she talks about the far talking about the far left, political left, that they often engage in recreational bitterness. Isn't that a fabulous term? Yeah. She just nails it. She also wrote, by the way, you should you should check her out. She's fantastic. She's also a close friend. Oh, really? And uh, has been to Dolpo with me several times, wrote a fabulous article about our nomads clinic in the New Yorker for the New Yorker. Mm. And she wrote the introduction to the book. And um, that woman's mind is just a treasure treasure house but uh, she comes up with all these fabulous terms including recreational bitterness where um the she, she quotes the perfect becomes the enemy of the good for example that's one of her lines that's just so so brilliant and um she also uh is so clear that our own political process you know for those of us who are uh um, more politically inclined, which includes me and Rebecca, that um, uh, the kind of carping that liberals do or a certain sector of feminists or certain kind of spiritual people sort of tearing down, uh, you know, the the, uh, efforts of the, say, the... uh, I'm not gonna get into politics, even though well, I'm I deep was. into it. Go but, ahead. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. But anyway, uh, the efforts of the, you know, of the the left, uh, just of the far left, where, you know, there's partisan fighting uh, within the context, for example, of those of us who are, you know, not so conservative. And that just doesn't help at all. I mean, it, it, it divides... Um, our efforts to unify our country in the way of good. And Rebecca just, she nails it. Recreational bitterness. And, you know, I certainly saw this in feminism as well. You know, where, you know, one group of feminists are sort of browbeating another group of feminists because they're not feminists enough. And it's like, oi. Yeah. That's just... So she talks about turning moral outrage into a competitive sport, okay? Right. So I'm going to tell you, that's why when um, I look back on this, I actually had, you know, made a note about it and and thought, oh, yeah, this would be something to talk about. But uh, I last night, <laughs> last night was the Super Bowl, okay? Remember I we watched this. We watched the Super Bowl together did, one did, year. But, you know... Uh, anyway, yeah. All right. So the Super Bowl was between the New England Patriots and the Philadelphia Eagles. And so talk about uh, moral outrage into a competitive sport. I, the the, uh, New England Patriots are owned by a gentleman named Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick is the uh, coach and the the star quarterback. Uh, all are close to Donald Trump. Oh. Yeah. So I went into this. I don't care. Ultimately, my team is New York Giants, so I, I didn't care who would really win, except for the fact I got into what she, Rebecca is absolutely edifying. I was it. I just wanted them to lose. 
I wanted them to lose because they were close to Donald Trump. Okay, so uh, I I read this. I reread this this morning. I went, oh Christ, I'm right in that ball game, aren't I? (laughs) But we this is this is a huge issue, and it happens all the especially now with this huge polarization in this country. And it's it becomes, true. Yeah. And, and you just, know, there's so much negativity, complaining, bullying, putting down of other people. It's really sickening. And yeah. it, it's it's impairing our deepest political process. Yeah. And we're all part of it. I yeah. count myself right in there uh, with it as well. Well, uh, let me ask you, what yeah. do you think? What do you think of the book? What do I think of your book? Yeah. Are you are you kidding? No, I want to know. I love this book and it this book I, I, we said it in the very beginning it will take me five podcasts. I'm going to have to nail you on that and do it over this year. We'll have to do five podcasts, okay? Or I'll catch you in Maui and we'll do some more on this. There it it is so unusual in the uh in you bringing up these different edge states which Every one of them has something to offer for everyone in terms of the of us all being able to to get at our inner truth and to become uh, one of the things. And I was going to talk about this in a little bit here before we lose you. Um, is uh, Sharon uh, in in a thing that we did it in in Maui, and I've. I've been working with all of our, from Jack and J- Joseph and Sharon, I've been working with everybody around this, which is how do, so, uh, Duncan Trussell said to uh, Sharon, what do you do? Is What's your spiritual practice? And she said, I get up in the morning, I sit on my mat and I get real, Duncan. And so <laughs> now we've gone into a whole thing. What is getting real? Getting real is is dealing with our projections. Getting real is dealing with the story that we convince ourselves is real, uh, and so on and so forth. And we've been investigating this. Well, okay, standing at the edge, uh, I have notes throughout this. Okay, this is about getting real. Okay, this is about getting real. It's about getting real with our integrity, getting real with our, our, our respect, getting real with, uh, with the altruism, and so on. So that's what I feel about this book. It it is a primer about getting more real in our lives so that we can identify and as you said in the beginning whatever mistakes and whatever places that we m- happen to get into that are negative that we can use them to to move ourselves forward to to become free of of these kinds of afflictions that uh, prevent us from from being of use to our fellow humans how's that for you you, you... wow <laughs> oh uh, wow i uh, thank you so much ragu i'm you know i'm very grateful to have written this book because it gave me the opportunity to think deeply about this you know i i teach this all the time but somehow uh, sitting in the midst of each of these edge states and sitting on the edge of each of the edge states and looking into the geography of suffering and also into the geography of virtue. And, th- you know, I, I got to think about, I, you know, I have friends and associates all over the world 
who are struggling as they are, you know, in a world of such dynamic change and where there's a feeling of extreme vulnerability, but also um, there's also a, a feeling of, okay, uh, this is a time where, in a way, I was born um, to be in the world that we are now so I can really serve this world. Mm, so yeah. it was a great, uh, you know, I, I, it was a great experience writing the book. Mm, yeah, no, and it, it, uh, it translates as such. There's something else I, I want to bring up with you before we uh, part company here. In the book, uh, you talk about the, this particular practice that, that is done at Upaya, uh, chanting the verse of atonement is what uh -huh. it is. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born of body, speech, and mind, I now fully atone. Sounds like Yom Kippur, uh, <laughs> Day of Atonement a little bit. The word atone is a good one. And so I was brought up, you know, it was such a good and evil thing in my, you know, being brought up Jewish. It was a very, it's a very difficult word. But atonement, and this twisted me into a different direction, means at one not separating from the truth of, our whole of the whole of our lives and bringing the fractured pieces together as an act of brave and honest conciliation. So one of the other things that I've been working on and I, I really wanted to, to get your perspective of, and that is around karma, because that is what we're talking about here in, in this particular prayer. Uh, is to uh, transform. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about karma? And I mean, many people, of course, cause and effect, and, and there's a sim the simplistic stuff around it. I actually did a podcast, Roshi, with uh, Robert Svoboda. I don't know if you know who yeah. Robert is. Yeah. So uh, Robert, and the third book of his uh, Agora books was called The Law of Karma, and, and he really had some uh, just absolutely beautiful, uh, uh, he passed along some beautiful uh, definitions and, and characterizations of karma from Vimalananda. But can just in your own life and your practice, and uh, I, I really want to get at w how we can use the wisdom of karma uh, to, to help in our transformation process. I think there are a number of perspectives here that are interesting. One is that if, if we have the insight of uh, interdependence, interconnectedness, and interpenetration, that we are in this kind of Indra's net of connection, we begin to understand something about uh, what Teilhard de Chardin uh, talked about. He said, you know, in the evolution of consciousness, the more consciousness there is, the more responsible we are. And so taking responsibility is really one of the key aspects for me in um, our understanding of karma. Um, you know, we can't say, for example, if a child, uh, you know, a little baby pulls the trigger on a gun accidentally and kills his parent, uh, we can say, oh, that's a certain kind of karma. But um, holding that child responsible is um, not within you know, uh, reasonableness at all. If you, uh, so that's one aspect, you know, to understand our interconnectedness, to understand the role of uh, our responsibility 
and to also understand that um, bad things happen to good people. And we can attribute it to something in a past life, um, or we can look at it as an opportunity for development. And so um, part of, I think, what makes this book interesting from the karmic perspective is that it's not to turn away from the difficulties we encounter, like the bad karma part of our lives, whether we've sown it or been, been subject to it, but that um, uh, we have the opportunity to use the hand that we've been dealt um, as a way to develop moral character and as a way to ultimately uh, open up compassion um, within our own lives in order to serve others. And maybe talk a little, uh, one of the things that I do talk and I have talked with uh, other friends of ours and teachers about uh, is the, the level of subtlety in terms of thoughts that we that we generate, or thoughts that occur, and how they uh, have a profound effect, and particularly around supporting and the continuation of habitual patterns, habitual patterns. Absolutely. Being. So maybe yeah, talk about karma and habitual pattern and patterns and awareness there. Well, I you know the reason why many of us practice is to become aware of our self talk our self-talk and to actually identify the memes or the patterns of thinking or the biases or the views that um, distort our perception of reality. Hmm. Uh, the, uh, just to quote a little of Robert, the comment, each of us continually spawns thought forms as we attract the thought forms of others, which is an interesting thing. Images of similar nature resonate with and reinforce one another according to the universal law of attraction. Like continues increasing like until the force of an image becomes so strong that its pressure on the mind can no longer be withstood. When it projects, the image, the image's owner acts out the image in the quote-unquote real world. Well, that's interesting. Okay. What do you think about that in relation, because now we're, you know, what we're bringing into when we're talking about karma is the attracting f thought forms of others. I, I think there's something there to it. I'm not quite sure. Well, I, you know, I was talking in the book about cognitive resonance. Mm. And um, so I feel like that really is about, you know, how we identify, for example, you know, a good part of the German population identified with the thought form of Hitler yeah. and was uh, the Third Reich was really built on that kind of subtle transmission process. I would say this is true, for example, uh, for uh, our own political process in the West, in, in the United States, um, that we are, uh, it's why you said it, we say it in Zen all the time, don't believe your thoughts. And your thoughts are really not even your thoughts. They're corporate America's thoughts, right? Their Christian thoughts, their Jewish thoughts, um, drop beneath the uh, structures 
that have um, captured you, so to speak, and see if you can perceive the world and reality in an unmediated way. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> no, it's not. There's one thing. You can't, I can't leave you without you because in, in, there's also a chapter on respect, okay? And I know you've spent a lot of time with His Holiness, and you have got to give us a little tidbit of being with His Holiness around this particular subject. I have seen him myself. I have not been in the kind of uh, close uh, company with him that you have. So I need you to just give us all just what respect really is through his actions. Well, you know, I, I think I told a story in the book where um, he's at a science meeting and, uh, you know, neuroscientists and contemplatives are sitting with him and he picks up a little card and he scrapes it along his forearm and he hands it to Sokni Rinpoche. And um, Sokni Rinpoche takes the card outside and liberates the little bug that was on his holiness's arm. And I thought, wow, that guy, he respects even the littlest creature. Yeah. So it's holding all beings and things in equal regard. And he is the best example of this that uh, I think is uh, publicly, li in a public way, of course, living today. I mean, he's extraordinary. One time in a, uh, he w they were just setting up for him to give a talk. And the, the, the engineer, the guy who was handling the audio, came up to put his uh, microphone, his lavalier on and make sure everything was okay. And, you know, there was all the monks and, I mean, this thousands of people, 10,000 people were in the audience or whatever it was. And the way that he put his full attention onto this man and gave him that it was like two minutes of absolute total attention to somebody, you know, who does this? I know. Who does this, you know? And, uh, and last thing I'll say, uh, which is about this book, okay? Uh, there's one word in the whole book. I have one word that I love more than everything else in the whole book, Roshi. What's that? Wholeheartedness. Isn't that just the best? Yeah, that, that is um, a word Brother David used. I talk about that word in relation to him. And it's the word that I have used to translate virya in Sanskrit, which is one of the folds of the Eightfold Path. Yes, wholeheartedness. Yeah, and if we could all embody wholeheartedness a little bit more in our lives, I think uh, the world would be a, a better place. So, And the world would be a better place if everyone picks up on this book, Standing at the Edge. It really will be that. Thank you again so much. Of course, everybody, you can go to uh, BeHereNowNetwork.com and go to Mind Rolling. And we will have a way for you to pre-order. It'll be a direct link, Roshi's book on Amazon, and help uh, with that process so that more people will be aware of it when it actually does come out. And uh, you can also go to upaya, U-P-A-Y-A dot org, and you can find out everything that's going on in Santa Fe at, uh, uh, at Upaya. And... Uh, 
Is there what's going on with the cabin? I, I want to say this last. Well, thing. Well, you know, I have been fundraising, Raghu, and thank you for asking, um, because uh, it is essential that we replace uh, these buildings. It's it wasn't just one building that went, and so um, you know we got some insurance money, but uh, we vastly underinsured uh, these buildings, mm. uh, unfortunately. So I'm just doing what I have to do to uh, replace. And I'll be going up to uh, Wisconsin on Thursday, actually, for 24 hours to look at a, a very cool prefab because building in this wilderness is no small task. Yeah, right. And I need to, uh, you know, I need, I need more funding right now to get this whole thing to work um, if we use these uh, prefabs, which are just beautiful. But mm. I, you know, I have a little ways to go. All right. Well, anybody who's interested in helping, Rosie Joan, I'm sure it's all there on upaya.org. It is. It's in the donations, and you'll see Refuge Rebuild Fund. So thank you, Raghu, so much for asking. No, um, we just uh, have the, as you know, and I said at the very beginning, who you are to me is uh, extraordinarily important in my life. Never mind just the love that we share and, and our friendship with Ramdas and so on. So uh, anybody out there who wants to help, please do so. And we shall Thank see you. you next week on Mind Rolling. On Fantastic. The Network. Thank you again, Roshi. Love you.